Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Here's your host, Tom Bourne. Hi and welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Bourne, and with me today is the marvellous Greg Smith, who I have a lot of time for because he's done some wonderful work. He's very well respected in legal circles. He's the author of a book called Paper Safe, which brilliant reading. Realistically, I'd suggest all safety professionals, as well as all managers and business owners, probably have a read. But uh, it is an absolute pleasure of mine to uh, have Greg on the program. Greg, how are you? Good, Tom. Tom, yeah, thanks for having me. Sorry, it's taken us a little while to, to tee something up, but it's great to be here. Excellent. Now, Greg, you're a lawyer that has dealt with predominantly health and safety matters. I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know the exact terminology to discuss or to, to say what it is. But what made you head down that path? What made you think about, first of all, law and then specialising in safety law? A law I just fell into. Um, you know, I was a farmer's son. I went away to boarding school. You got good enough grades to get into university back in those days. So that's sort of 35 years ago. You, you didn't go straight into law. You had to do another degree. You had to do a, a, the first year of another degree first. And if you did well enough there. You had the option to go to law school. I did well enough. I had the option. I took it up, got through and got a job. So that's how I got into law. Um, back in the, and you talk about safety law. So back in the day, so 30 odd years ago, 35 years ago, you couldn't study safety law. It wasn't a topic. And that's not unusual. There's lots of areas of law that change over time. So I, I actually came out and started practice as an employment lawyer, industrial relations, workplace relations and employment, working with a large firm. Um, in the course of that work, I got involved in accidents and fatalities and just over a period of time, I just evolved into becoming predominantly and most recognised as a workplace health and safety lawyer. Although I, I still do do employment and industrial relations work, but I'm predominantly known for the work I do in workplace health and safety these days. Yeah, as I said, absolute honour to have you on the show. Now, you're based in Perth. I've spent most of my life in the eastern states, and it, it in eastern states, anyhow, it was, it was always a bit of a, a running joke, the the fact that West Australia was still operating until last year on the 1984 Occupational Health and Safety Act. In your opinion, how how well did that piece of legislation actually protect and provide safe workplaces in Western Australia? It, it was as effective as any other piece of health and safety legislation since about the early 1980s up to and including the Work Health and Safety Act. Um, at its core, it's not very different from the Work Health and Safety Act. It, it has all the same problems. That the, it's not, it, it hasn't provided any fundamental difference. And when you look at 
the you look at the fatality rates, mm. for example, and I rates are not a measure of anything, but yep. just for those of people who sort of count and put this stuff out, there is no appreciable discernible difference between the fatality rates of jurisdictions that have had WHS legislation since 2011-2012 and those that have not. And if you look in the period from 2011 to 2011-2020, Victoria and WA actually had, for that period, on average, lower fatality rates than all of the, the combined fatality rates for the jurisdictions that had WHS legislation for whatever that means. But the variation from year to year and during those periods is statistically insignificant. So the legislation doesn't make any difference in, in any appreciable sense. Yeah. yeah. And on the national level, I've seen in since 2018, the fatality rate literally across Australia has actually started to creep back up again. And people crowing the success of WHO legislation and seeing the drops from across the board across since 2012 to 2018, it's actually started to creep up again. And I've, I've never heard anyone being able to satisfactorily explain that. Well, it's not. There's a, a paper that's put out. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. I think I've referenced it in some books before, but the there's no... We cannot tell the impact of regulatory programs on things like workplace health and safety. Mm -hmm. Now, there's no empirical evidence that the, the the structure of workplace health and safety legislation at the moment or historically has had significant impacts on injury rates. There's no evidence that significantly increasing penalties has any impact on safe workplaces, whatever that means, or injury rates. So the, the legislation is is part of a, a far more complex picture. And I, I don't think we really have any good evidence or studies or information about why the injury rates across the board have have come down over time. Well, when I say the injury rates have come down, it's, it's a bit difficult to assess. Um, serious injury rates seem to be fairly stable. Injury rates seem to flex up and down. Fatality rates spike around the place a bit. It's it's a difficult it's a difficult issue I think to quantify and understand. Certainly, I would think that technology has played a part. I remember speaking to an inspector of mines who who told me that in his view one of the biggest contributors to the improved injury rate fatality in the mining industry was the investment in on-site emergency response and medical services, and that a lot of the events that historically would have resulted in fatalities now don't result in fatalities because of the better application of emergency response and first aid and medical treatment. doesn't mean our workplaces are any more or less safe. It just means we're better at preventing the fatal outcomes from the same sort of accidents. So yeah. it's a complex, it's a complex picture. Okay. 2022, when the new act became I don't know, active, enacted yep. with the release of not one, but three sets of regulations. Yep. Are you a fan at all of the harmon or almost harmonised legislation or is there well, some areas that you just look at and shake your head? Yeah, I note the reluctance to call it harmonised. I think that is an issue. It hasn't mm. achieved the outcome it was designed to achieve in that sense. Work health and safety legislation is a very blunt instrument to deal with a very complex, difficult issue. I do not like the shift in legislation to a, a model of retributive justice. Mm -hmm. It seems now that everybody expects corporate and individual prosecutions every time there is a serious workplace accident with an expectation, an increasing expectation around terms of imprisonment and significant fines. I don't think that is a model that... I don't think it's a sustainable model, and I don't think it is a model that will do anything to improve workplace health and safety. Um, because, you know, where do we go from here? You've got 10, 10 or $20 million fines, depending on your jurisdiction. You've got significant jail terms and built around this model of industrial manslaughter. So in five years' time, when kids, you know, young apprentices are still dying at work and people are still being killed at work, what's next? Industrial manslaughter, bigger fines, 
um, I, I think the deterrent effect of you know the deterrent effect of legis of work health and safety legislation to to end up with safer workplaces is very tenuous, and I I haven't read any studies that sort of suggest there's a strong link, and at best it's it, it might just create some publicity around the events. So I, I don't think I, I don't think certainly I don't think the model is the, the, sorry the health and safety legislation is not in keeping with modern thinking about what we need to do to have safer workplaces. Now, the whole safety too, resilience engineering, safety differently conversation is a confused one at times as well, but I'm not sure we are, we are doing very much at all to try and integrate modern thinking about health and safety into health and safety legislation. So yeah. I, you know, I don't think the answer lies there. Okay. Speaking of industrial manslaughter, one of the great things I, I've heard in the past is, and it, it changed my thought way of thinking, is that no worker ever goes to work to get hurt. But on the flip side of that, I've never thought of an, any employer that goes to work with the intent of killing any of their own workers. No. And that's the sad thing. It, I don't think, apart from the shock factor with industrial manslaughter, which may make people think just simply, I don't know if it'll actually make a difference. I, I have some real doubts whether we'll actually ever see a successful industrial manslaughter prosecution for anything other than small businesses. Am I missing a point there? or is, or, or is No, it... no, I think that's right. I mean, certainly that's the history. The, the, there's good research and my own experience that... The, the prosecution of company officers in Australia, historically, almost universally, involves the prosecution of small business owners with day-to-day hands-on involvement with the work. Okay, that's, forget industrial manslaughter, even the whole Section 27 due diligence, which was designed to sort of bring in the corporate executive into the party, it, it hasn't done, it's unlikely to do that in the near term. We'll have to wait and see. But yeah, no, your point's well made. I don't think industrial manslaughter will ever rise beyond that small business owner making direct day-to-day decisions involved in the work. It won't, it certainly won't, it won't lead to any change. I, I don't think anyone would really be surprised about that. As you say, most most of the time, most small business owners who are involved in these catastrophic events where people die are not taking shortcuts. Or if, to the extent they are, they're, they're shortcuts that are sort of hardwired into the way they've always done work. They're not putting production before safety. They're just trying to get on with it. Right. I, I can understand people get critical about that and that point of view and they say, well, they should and they ought to make the time and effort. And I get that and I understand that. But just saying that they should make the time and effort and then bookmarking that with you will go to jail is not going to achieve that outcome. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And, fair and, enough. and the prosecution process is such a blunt, it is such a blunt instrument. You, we don't learn. So I I acted for a company and an individual in Western Australia as a decision in March 2000, 2020, 22, 21, 22, 21 it must have been. It was the first time a person went to jail in WA for breach of health and safety legislation. It wasn't called industrial manslaughter back then it was called gross negligence but it's the same you talk to small business owners now never heard of it don't know about it don't understand what it's about no lessons learned nothing changed no it's done nothing so all the all the all the advocates for deterrence or the deterrent theory of these sorts of prosecutions they got their wish they got a case a 60 year old bloke went to jail and they did nothing with it all right. Nothing's been learned. No lessons. Just nothing has happened to to create any worthwhile effect. And at at the same time, when you talk about the prosecution, so one of the comments from the magistrate in the case was, because you have to understand, a prosecution is not an inquiry. Nobody's trying to actually understand what went wrong to learn lessons. The prosecution makes a charge. They put up some particulars. 
the defence answers those charges and that's it. And the magistrate in that case actually had to say, and you know, this ended up, I think, being part of the mitigation, why, why we ended up with the penalty that we did and not a more significant penalty, was that neither the prosecution nor the defence could explain to the court why the work was performed the way it was performed on the day of the accident. So there wasn't even a discussion about why did this happen this way. Yep. So it's, it's not an instrument that leads to learning. It's not an instrument that is going to contribute anything to the fabric of effective health and safety management. Yeah. yeah. I think there was around early 2022, there seemed to be quite a bit of concern in the West Australian com- business community, anyhow, about industrial manslaughter. There was seemed to be a lot of misunderstanding about what it was and how many actual successful prosecutions to date have been actually held or affected in around Australia. But your your organisation did put out a series of videos which you made freely available to help businesses understand the impacts of the changes in the, the legislation. Can I say, at that time, the regulator here wasn't putting out anything for anybody it was it was like a vacuum of information so thank you very much because as I said I I I teach people and students were concerned their employers were concerned no one basically knew anything so at least I could actually play some of those videos and and give them a, a bit of a learned point of view rather than just me speaking from my experience using the legislation or similar legislation in other states. Now, paper safe, got that, was recommended to me and I, I, I bought that and read it. Oh my God, really good. And to be honest, I really like the fact that you used real case studies of real cases to basically exhibit your point. For those who haven't actually read it yet, can you explain to them what the main theme is in the book? I guess there's two parts, two parts to the book. The one of the themes in the book is to say that paperwork per se, so the actual just the generation of paperwork isn't isn't evidence of safe systems of work and they certainly don't necessarily provide any sort of legal protection if something goes wrong. And indeed, the converse is probably the case that your documented safety management systems are often the biggest source of legal liability for your organisation. Mm. And that's because you write down all of this stuff that you say you're going to do and it's not what happens in practice. And as soon as you create that gap between your documented safety processes and the way that work actually occurs, you open the door to the regulator. It becomes pretty easy to to mount a prosecution. But the, the more important conversation in the book was really for me about the disconnect between process and purpose. So we create documents or we create processes in health and safety that are designed to achieve an outcome. And the model that I often use is like the take five process. Now, you know, you can argue about whether the take five process is a good process or not, but leaving that to one side for the moment, you create a take five process. And as I understand it, talking to most people, most of the time they say, the reason why we have a take five process is to provide an opportunity for the worker to stop and think about the hazards associated with their work just before they engage with the task. And then that's that's the purpose. That's what we want them to do so that we know they're stopping, they're thinking about the job, they understand the hazards before they engage with the work. Unfortunately, what we do, and we every single health and safety process looks like this. We have, we have an idea that's designed to achieve an outcome and then we slap a process on top of it. And that's not a problem in of itself, except what happens is the way that we measure success in health and safety is by measuring activity. We count the process. So everybody's done their take five today, therefore the process is a success and we've got a green traffic light. What we don't do is, and we we are just so poor in this, we don't test the outcome. Has our take five process resulted in a significant number or a majority or whatever it is, however you want to think about it? How do we know that the workers using this process actually understand the hazards and are engaging with the risks and understand what they're going to do about it? We don't test that. 
you can you can take any health and safety process in your organization and you can say what was the purpose of this process did we achieve that purpose jha safe work method statements training investigations safety conversations critical check it doesn't matter and what we find or what i find is that this model is the same everywhere you have a process it's got a purpose we measure outcome we don't know if the purpose is being achieved over time that becomes even more problematic because for many of the workers the process becomes the purpose so the reason i am completing this jaj is because somebody's going to come and look at this jaj i need to make sure i have a completed process to show somebody not this is my tool to help me engage with the risk and i, I think that's that's universal um you know the reason I'm closing out this corrective action is because it's going to end up on somebody's key performance indicator, so I need to close it out. The reason I'm doing this incident investigation is that if it's not done in 28 days, someone's going to come ask, look for it, so I just need to get it closed out. And I think the vast majority of what we do in safety and health is mechanistic and tick and flick and bureaucratic process driven, and we've lost sight of, of the way we use these processes to engage with risk. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree 100%. It, it's, it's like we're measuring, as you said, activity or yep. the quantity of activity, but we're not measuring the quality of the outcomes that we wanted, which is yep. bizarre. You, you used the examples in the, in the book of take fives, that huge percent. We, we'd kept years and years of take fives. We'd measured how many take fives percentage-wise of the workers that they'd completed. But we actually hadn't looked if they were actually completing the take fives the way they were intended to be. And if we're not looking at the results of the take five, you've got to question, is anyone taking action on anything that was reported on the yep. take fives? Yep. And it's, I think it's even more, I think it even goes a step beyond that, Tom. So we're not even confirming the quality of the completed process, much less whether the process is achieving the outcome. Yeah. And I, I, that's the bit that I think we've really lost sight of is, is it achieving the outcome? You know, has, does the, you know, pre, there's lots of cases around pre-start checklists on vehicles, for example. I can complete a pre-start checklist on a vehicle and have no idea whether that vehicle is safe to operate. Yep. So what are we doing to make sure people understand the safety requirements or can identify risk in their work? That's the missing piece, I think, in a lot of this stuff. I, I think with any of those checklists we actually ask people to complete is, you've got to ask yourself, why are we doing them? Yep. I mean, obviously, as you said, with take fives, the intention initially is, is well-meaning, you know, to and get workers engaged with their work, their tools and that, and see if it's actually appropriate or safe to carry out work. But I think you would struggle to find any workers on any site who see that intent. Most of them see it as just a, a, another bureaucratic hurdle they have to jump through or jump over before they can actually do the job that they're paid to do, that they want to do. I seriously think we may actually have lost a whole generation of workers who've, who've come to the belief collectively that all of these things are not for their safety at all. There is certainly work that supports that position. There's some good work by an Australian academic called David Boris, B-O-R-Y-S, and he's done stuff around these frontline risk tools you know, whether the overwhelming position of of the workers in the studies that he has done, and I, I hope I'm not putting it out of context, but when you read it, the idea that the document we have to, I, I as a worker have to produce all of this material, this frontline risk documentation material, not for my own benefit, but to cover the backsides of senior managers. I think that's a, 
a genuine perception around the place. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a problem. I think it's a problem for us. I think I think we have disengaged with workers in some industries. In some we haven't. You know, there's pocket. It's like anything. There's it's on a spectrum. There are pockets of excellence everywhere. You can go into organisations where. Typically, it's driven by a really high-quality supervisor where the work team have really good processes. They understand what they're doing. At the other end of the spectrum, you get processes that are just nothing more than tick and flick and mechanistic compliance going on. Yeah, there's there's complexities to it in, in all of these issues that we're trying to deal with. And I don't think, for, for me anyway, so I, I'm probably slightly different. So, you know, if you take... Takes so I, 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 as a lawyer, I'm generally agnostic about safety processes, right? If you say to me, behavioral based safety is bad, and someone else says behavioral based safety is good, okay, I, I have a view on that, on, on those things, all right? But as a lawyer, I'm completely agnostic. I don't care how yeah. you do safety. What I care about is can you demonstrate to me that the way that you do safety meets your obligations? You know, if, if you choose behavioural-based safety, that's fine. How do you demonstrate that using behavioural-based safety? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. ...ensures your workers understand the hazards that they have to engage with. If you don't use behavioural-based safety and use something else, well, you still have to prove the same thing. That's what I'm interested in. And, and so I'm not saying to anybody... Get rid of JHAs, for example. Mm-hmm. I don't like JHAs. Yep. I'm not saying get rid of them, but I'm saying if you have them and you're going to keep copies of these things, how do you know that they work? That's the that's all I'm interested in. Show show me that it works. Take the time to critically question. If you if you use pre-start vehicle checklists, how do you know that they work? How do you know that they're being done correctly so that if you have a catastrophic failure with a piece of equipment and I go back and look at three years' worth of pre-start vehicle checklists, how do I know that they are going to evidence that the workers properly engaged with that risk management exercise? Or am I going to see documents that are all just tick, 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 and nothing being done about the issues that were raised in them? Yeah. I, th- I think, to be honest... From my experience, anyhow, you're going to find the ladder there. I've seen, I've seen on mine sites vehicles that have literally seized engines because for months people have been ticking that the oil's up, up to, up to level, and eventually the cars just run out of oil and stopped. The old flip over the page. What did the previous person do it? And and no one questions it. No one ever questions. No one ever goes back and says, "Did you do a a check? If you've done a check." Now let's do it together to see if yep. we come up with the same answer. I think though all of those tools are kind of useless unless we actually go and, and, and see if they've been done correctly. Yep. And and I think the problem with that view, and I agree, Tom, I, I agree. And I the way I explain it is that if you're not prepared to put the time and resources and effort into understanding if your process works, you're better off not having the process. But in most organisations, that is functionally impossible to do because we have so many processes. You, you can't actually verify all of them. You've got to make some decisions about, you know, what you actually want to have operating in your organisation. 
Has bureaucracy, has bureaucracy, as you say in your book, finally won the battle that we've developed processes for the sake of developing processes and then implemented ways to measure the processes rather than actually, I don't know, concentrating on keeping our people safe? I think, I don't know if it's one, but what I'll say to you is there's a couple of things. One is organisations find it extraordinarily reluctant to let things go. So I can sit with a room in a room full of supervisors who will all say to me that um, a JHA process for their business adds absolutely no value. Everybody hates it and it doesn't work. But nobody's going to let that process go. So there's, it's very hard. There's a lot of sunk cost, all right? You know, injury rate data. Injury rate data is extraordinarily problematic as a measure of safety and it adds no value to me as a lawyer. Yet so many of our safety management systems are, are built around data collection for that number. So it's a lot of sunk cost that we don't want to let go of in terms of our databases. So that, that's problematic. And then the other part of that is I think when we, we get, then we get slightly schizophrenic organisations that operate complex bureaucratic safety management systems on the side because they think that, and in some cases it's true, that they need to demonstrate those systems. So if you, if you do any work that falls under the purview of the, the Office of the Federal Safety Commissioner, you've got no choice. You've got to show all of that stuff or you're not getting government contracts. If, if you're a subcontractor to some of the big mining houses, you don't have a choice. If you're a subcontractor to some of the tier one construction companies, you don't have a choice. All, all that stuff has got to be there. It's got to exist. And the schizophrenic part is they then have this other personality that says there's all the stuff that we have to have in place to demonstrate what people want to see. These are the mechanics we actually have for ourselves to effectively manage health and safety in our business. And they, they, they're operating differently, which is a huge problem from a legal perspective if something goes wrong. Yeah, yeah. I just wonder if the, the large businesses usually employ complex electronic systems to measure safety performance, and you have to worry that they're just not measuring the right things, so that you know that things that pop up and give you all these green lights. It's just as you said, it's a measure of activity. It's not that we're actually safe. Is that to the Companies put those systems in place, in your opinion, simply to be able to give officers and those in high positions in the organisations some sort of quantitative analysis of where the organisation sits with safety? I'm sure that's part of the reason. It's not. It doesn't achieve that outcome. There's no, in my view, and I'm... I'm I'm trying to. I'm trying to. Hopefully, by the end of March, I'm trying to finish a book on this issue about proving safety. There is not a metric that we can create that tells us if our organisation is safe. Okay, that that's not a thing. It, it, in my view, it's not a thing, and it doesn't exist. And and even if there was, the measures of safety are all wholly corruptible and manipulatable so they we get the numbers that we want and as we touched on before they are all measures of activity you, you look at any metric count they are all measures of activity the number of inspections done the number of safety conversations the number of corrective actions closed out the number of investigations done the percentage of training completed all of that stuff and the assumptions that sit below those numbers are enormous if you're saying that the a measure of safety in our organisation is the number of corrective actions closed out on time, I mean, you are making assumptions about the quality of your investigation processes, you're making assumptions about the, 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 the validity or value of the corrective actions, you're making assumptions about the quality of the way they are closed out. It's, it, it, everything's just replete, replete with assumptions. And what we're not doing is 
presenting to the executive a narrative report that says, in the last reporting period, these are all of the assurance activities that we undertook to know if our safety management processes are working and if they're working effectively. And based on that, this is our view. There, there's got to be some, some more of that built into our systems. Even if we're going to hang on to the numbers, that narrative explanation needs to sit behind it. You're not telling me that uh, lost time injury frequency rate and that mean nothing, are you? I'm, from a lawyer's perspective, they mean nothing. I think from everyone's um, perspective, they I think actually mean nothing. Yeah, I think from a safety perspective, they mean nothing as well. Look, it, injury rate data has a role in helping to shape organisational responses. So if you are getting lots of hand injuries, then that gives you something to identify and say, we need to deal with hand injuries. If you're getting lots of back injuries, similarly, you need to, to look at that. But you cannot equate an injury rate number with a safe system of work. If you have a, you've got an injury rate number that is below industry standard, and you have a worker who gets their arm torn off in a conveyor belt, no one will be able to stand up in front of a court or tribunal or the coroner and say, the evidence that our systems of work were safe is the fact that we had an injury rate that was 0.7 below industry standard. No relationship at all. It's a conversation about the hazards associated with pinch points on conveyors. What did you do to control that? That's the only conversation. All right. One of the main reasons I, I asked you to come on the show is the new changes that came into the regulations. Came in uh, December 24th. Yeah, Christmas Eve. Yeah. Yep. What, what a great time to release uh, changes to legislation when everyone's listening. Yeah. Regarding psychosocial <laughs> hazards. Um, and it, to me, it looks like we're basically just saying, we're just basically formalising what should have been in place that we treat psychosocial hazards in this much in the same importance at least as we do physical hazards is that a fair interpretation yeah i think so i, I, I is it, uh, this, this is such a problematic issue so you know first of all we see people online saying oh it is now a legal requirement well that's just just nonsense all right there's a back in june 2015 the wa parliament released a report into mental health issues in the fly and fly out industry and so at least as early as june 2015 the department the regulator was all saying oh no no we understand psychosocial health is a workplace hazard and that's part of the whole thing so it's always been a legal obligation Everybody's understood it as a legal obligation under health and safety legislation. Just nobody's done anything about it. Mm. Okay, so that's the issue. There's no question about that. So that that's the first problem. Well, it's, it's not a problem, but it's not new. And we, we shouldn't be getting excited about this as something new. It's just now the regulator will start paying attention to it, which means we've got to pay a bit more attention to it. That's fine. Except that. I think it is deeply problematic to take something as complicated as psychosocial risk and just dump it into the bucket of workplace health and safety with nothing more. One of the biggest problems we have, I think, in health and safety is that there is a genuine reluctance to speak up about safety concerns it's very difficult to have a safe conversation about safety all right so psychological safety the stuff that clive lloyd does you know is really good but it's, it's a long-term problem so for example work you'll get workers who will not be prepared to say oh there's a piece of guarding missing from that machinery perhaps we should stop and fix it because they don't that we don't talk about that or we don't raise it as a complaint some people do but generally not so how much more complicated is it going to, and that's objective, the guarding's not there and we don't talk about it. How much more complicated is it going to be for people to talk about bullying or harassment or sexual misconduct? Something that they perceive as a problem, but there's no objective measure. All right? 
And so if you raise it as a concern and there's an investigation and the investigation finds, oh, that conduct wasn't harassment, are you ever going to raise anything again? No, never. Is anybody else going to raise? So I think work health and safety is the wrong spot for it. It gets even, I think it gets even worse. You know, if, if trust is a problem in health and safety, the quality of incident investigations is another problem. Every organisation is concerned about the quality of their incident investigations. And now we want to take health and safety incident investigation methodologies and drop them on top of psychosocial risk. I mean, God, what's that going to look like? Yeah. And, 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 and I've been told this point blank by two separate regulators that we, we are required to do a work health and safety investigation of allegations around psychosocial risk, irrespective of the wishes of the complainant. All right? So if, if trust is already an issue in the organisation and I want to go and I want to have a confidential conversation with my supervisor who I trust about sexual misconduct, bullying or harassment or any of those, the supervisor now has an obligation to report it. They don't report it. Arguably, they're in breach of the legislation. Right? So you imagine that. You're a supervisor. Someone brings this concern about sexual misconduct. You don't do anything about it because of the, the confidence you have with that person. That person ends up getting sexually assaulted and everything comes out into the open you're suddenly in the spotlight for not doing your duty as a supervisor and reporting this issue. Yep. Now, if you do report it, all of a sudden it's being investigated. And in most organisations, it's lower management or health and safety that get bundled up with these sort of investigative responsibilities. And I think that'll continue to happen in a lot of cases, not all, but in a lot of cases. Are they really the right people to be investigating some of these complaints? And we know we, we've got a we've got case law that tells us that poorly investigated matters around psychosocial health make the problem worse and lead to significant financial consequences from a workers' compensation perspective. I, I just I just think I'm not so I'm at, so, psychosocial risk in the workplace is a significant issue. I, I don't discount that for a second. Work health and safety is the wrong vehicle to manage it in its current form. And I just don't think we've given enough thought to what it's going to look like and, and how we're going to manage it. I mean, can, can you imagine being a victim of sexual assault at a workplace um, and having to deal with investigations by the police, by the safety regulator, by your internal organisation, it just, it, I, I think it's problematic. I don't think it's been thought through enough. I think it's a knee-jerk reaction to a very serious problem. I'm really concerned it's going to make the problem worse. I think it's, I'm really concerned it's going to drive reporting underground. And I'm terrified to think what some of health and safety's solutions are going to be yeah. Yeah. in terms of procedures and checklists and processes and, and, yeah, and where well, we end up with. I, I agree with you 100%. I don't think necessarily having a certificate for in work health and safety is a, a great measure of dealing with psychosocial risk. No. Or having, having completed an ICAM course, enables you to actually you know do a proper psychosocial no. investigation and and ordinarily you would say well you need to bring in the expertise to help you deal with that all right and that's fine for organizations who have access to the expertise but the vast majority of organizations don't that's the reality of it so that's that's going to be problematic i think you know, we now really need to do a lot of work in getting HR departments and health and safety departments collaborating. Yep. That's going to be an interesting challenge in a lot of ways. Yeah, I'm, I'm 
dealing you've got a client who's dealing with you know claims by a regulator for every and this is an organization that is really trying to tackle high levels of stress in their workforce and the regulator demanding that they hand over their database of stress-related claims. And you've got an organisation saying, if it gets out that we've handed over this information, what do you think that is going to do to our reporting of stress claims? Disappear. And that, yeah. It's, it, again, I, I don't blame the regulator. They've got to do their job. I don't blame health and safety because they've got to try and respond to these regulations. It's just the wrong way to deal with to deal with this issue. And I think I think we could have I think we could have thought it through a bit better. Or yeah. or 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 at least thought through the regulations, the regulatory approach to this issue with a bit more care and consideration. I the main area of concern for me is, is how businesses are going to be able to prove that they're actually trying to control psychosocial issues that are raised in the workplace. Because my great fear is that we're just going to get lots and lots of policies and procedures slapped on workers again that they have to read and sign that they're not going to do X, Y, Z. Yeah. And that will the the other thing is that we'll get a whole bunch of well-meaning but perhaps not effective resilience training throw on workers to basically say, you know, you're the problem, it's not us, and we can't really do anything, but we're we're ticking the box to say we did yep. something. Look, I, I think again it's hard to generalize, but I think for lots of organizations, the 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 processes for dealing with psychosocial risk already exist they, they will have you know they will have training on expected workplace behaviors they will have codes of conduct and handbooks they'll have grievance procedures in the organization they will have performance reviews they'll have job description so when, when you look at the literature around this and i'm not an expert so i'm not giving anything like expertise but when you look at the literature around this it seems to me that core components around psychosocial health have something to do with clarity, communication, and security. So I'm clear in what my role is, what's expected. There's an open communication two-way, so people come and talk to me when things change or things that are going to affect me are discussed with me. I can communicate about my concerns without fear of retribution. And there's a sense of security in the workplace that I can raise issues without being ridiculed. My job's not at risk those sorts of things. There's other issues around job design and workload and autonomy and all of that sort of stuff. But, but I think those three things seem to sit at the core. And so I was a director of a, of a not-for-profit that went through a bullying allegation that got investigated by WorkSafe. So I've, I've looked at it from a lawyer. I've looked at it from a company director's perspective. I have a sense of, of what this is what this is about. And I think, hist again, historically, most of the tools that we need to manage this issue, like I said, grievance procedures, good job descriptions, good performance review processes, they seem pretty critical to the whole issue. But like health and safety, those things exist on paper and they don't translate very well into practice. All right, so grievance procedures don't become an opportunity to genuinely discuss in a collaborative way what a person's grievance is, they kick straight into an investigation process. They're very mechanistic. Oh, you have made a complaint. This is the process. Job descriptions are, are all typically pro forma, mechanistic. Not a lot of thought goes into them. They don't necessarily represent the job. And, you know, we've all been through performance reviews, either doing them or, 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 you know, being supervising them or doing them, whatever it is. Very mechanistic, tick and flick, oh, we've got to do this, let's get it through the process. Not a lot of discussion goes on. So the, the tools are there, the processes are there, the, the, there's guidance material available from the regulator. But, you know, if we don't live and breathe, and I hate that expression, so apologies to everybody, but if we don't live and breathe the sorts of processes we're putting in place, they're not going to address the concerns or the problems they're designed 
to address not that much differently from safety. But but to your particular fear, Tom, yes, I think psychosocial regulation is the greatest marketing cover since safety culture when it comes to the workplace health and safety industry. And I, I can't open my social media feeds without some new psychosocial product being I'll launched. You, I'll tell you what, I think it's I think it's just set to take off it, it bloom like you know algae in, in in a in a stagnant piece of water. I think it's really going to take off. And not necessarily by people who either have the qualifications, the expertise, or the concerns for the people, but just people who see this as, you know, a bit like the pink bat scheme. It's a way to cash in on oh, yeah. something that's hit the hit the market shall we say i think there'll be a bit of that and again i'm not sure it's it is such an important issue at the moment um and i i I just don't think we've set ourselves up from a whole structural framework very well for success oh well we'll see how it plays out all right speaking of your next book due out in march is it hopefully the end of march it might be a bit longer Okay. Do we get a hint of the name? That's proving safety. Excellent. Excellent. Should uh, look for it in local bookshops as well as online? Yeah, pretty much online. I think that's where yeah. most books you find these days. Yeah, absolutely. That's where it'll be. All right. Great. But don't don't worry, I'll I'll make some noise when it when it's out. I'll let please, people know. Please do. Please <laughs> do. All right, Greg. Thanks very much for your time and you've given up a considerable amount of it. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you and I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Tom, anytime any issues come up, more than happy to get involved and have a discussion. Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne. Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.